Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're speaking with Larry McKenna, widely known as the Prince of Pinot Noir here in New Zealand. Larry has been involved in the wine industry for more than 40 years, uh, more latterly working at the Escarpment Vineyard um, that he helped found over 20 years ago. So right now, let's go have a chat with Larry. Hi, Larry. Hey, Boris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for joining us on the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Great, great to have you on this episode. And so, yeah, you've got um, obviously a, a long story to tell about uh, your involvement in, in the wine industry here in New Zealand. So where, where did that originally start for you? Well, as far as New Zealand goes, it really started with uh, Jimmy Delegate in Auckland and John Hancock. John was the winemaker there in 1979 and uh, gave me a call and said, come and help me with the 80 vintage, 1980 vintage. And it was an opportunity I couldn't say no to for a number of reasons. Um, most of all, my then girlfriend and then became wife uh, was in New Zealand and I was in Australia. So I'd and, done and, a... Uh, and how, how would, um, what were you doing in Australia? What had been the sort of lead up to that? You'd been doing, you did a bit of travel initially, did you? And um, that, That's right. Have yep. a look around? Yep. I, I did a diploma in agriculture in South Australia at Roseworthy. And then was uh, doing the sort of after education overseas trip. And uh, yeah, we ended up, it was interesting to look back on it of going from wine region to wine region rather than from you know, museum to statue to whatever. We were yeah. obviously interested in the wine business and um, came back here and was looking for a job in South Australia and John got in first. So it was a very easy decision. It was. Ah. Wine was something I was brought up with in my family. I always credit my father with having a wine cellar, which was perhaps a little bit unusual in those days, but you know, he, he believed in uh, maturing wine and storing it properly, he had an underground cellar, and was the mystique, I think, in wine that uh, attracted me to the product to, to begin with. But I always was knew I was going to be involved in agriculture, horticulture of some sort. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, and then so you went um, went off to do your, your study when you were sort of quite young then because you already you, you had that in mind, that that was the path that you wanted to head down? Yeah, pretty much straight after school I uh, knew I wanted to get into agriculture in some form. So, yeah, then, yeah. and the opportunity of a tertiary education at Roseworthy was uh, was a, a great thing to be uh, to be part of. Yeah, it was very, and was that, very that quite cool. early days for Roseworthy then? Uh, yes, I get, well, I mean, Rosewood had probably been going 100 years at that stage. I'm not too sure of the history, but it was sort of a very established uh, agricultural school in South Australia with, you know, with viticulture, um, dry land farming, but all, all facets of agriculture, really. Um, it so wasn't the, just, uh, the viticulture wasn't just part South Australian. Right, no, okay. And vit- the viticulture um, course studies had been running for some time already. Yes, that's right. Okay, yep, yep. And then you did that for a few years and obviously went overseas. Whereabouts did you go? So France and... Yeah, mainly Europe. Yes, yep. Europe and the UK. Yeah. And and what what sort of bearing did that have on where you thought you might want to head with with wine? What... um, what Uh, That's a good good question because, yes, uh, I think I knew more about Bordeaux in those days, but... 
Uh, we visited Burgundy as well and totally fell in love with what Burgundy was and what my impression of what European wine should be and visiting the regions. Going to Bordeaux was like going to a huge city where no one wanted to know, no one wanted to talk to you. The cellar doors didn't really exist. The whole thing was you know, a big commercial industrial operation from my perspective and then the total opposite going to Burgundy and family-owned properties who wanted to welcome you and and uh, and discuss what they do one-on-one. So that was, yeah, the, 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 the attraction to Pinot Noir was from then on, really. Yeah, yeah. So just, you know, a lot, lot more accessible for you. Um, and, and also just seeing what the, the, the type of wine they were producing out of there. Yeah. And, and yeah. 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 Nice. Okay. And then you came back, you know, with the intention of you, you thought of working in South Australia, but then this opportunity came up in New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. With John and I went to school together in South Australia. Yeah. Um, it was another reason to come and help out. Um, that was initially just for vintage. And that was that was fine by me, but uh, I realised at the end of the, the vintage that well, the opportunity was there to stay on. And after doing a twelve-month stint and the second vintage with delegates, I, I you know there was no looking back. Um, I was married by then, and uh, you know New Zealand became my home. And yeah, as I said, I haven't looked back since. Yeah. It's been a fantastic, uh, fantastic opportunity in an industry. Then, in in the in the early eighties, was really just evolving into what it is now. So, I guess that's something that's been very interesting, really, over the last forty years. From my perspective, watch the industry change from largely fortified wine into what we now regard as high quality table wine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, sure. And, and so delegates, when you were with them, um, was that, um, top of the South Island? No, that was in Auckland. In Auckland? Auckland. The delegates were only operating out of Auckland. They brought fruit from mainly from Gisborne, a little bit from the Hawke's Bay, but essentially Gisborne only. Yep. And it was all processed in Glendean, in Glen Eden, in, uh, in Auckland. Auckland, uh, Bottled there. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and how long did you spend with with delegates? Five years. Um, mm-hmm. I went on to become winemaker in 1983, and then left there at the end of '85 to come to Martinborough in as an opportunity. In 1986, was offered the, an opportunity with Martinborough Vineyard as a sh- winemaker, shareholder, general manager, and it was yeah. a very small operation at that stage. I think the first year we picked 26 tons. But it was very exciting. There was only four wineries in Martinborough in 1986, Adirangi, Dry River, Shifney, which is now Margraine, and uh, Martinborough Vineyard. So, oh, yeah, it was uh, very exciting days. Yeah, nice, nice. And how did that opportunity come up for you? Did you you knew someone who was doing the venture or? Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't. But the the shareholders, there was five shareholders at that stage in that business. It was brand new. Um, one of the shareholders made the first wind in 1985 and they quickly realised that they needed a professional full-time winemaker if they were ever going to make a go of it. Yes. And they headhunted me um, through the industry and I remember driving down here with my then wife, Sue, and we had a look at the opportunity in late November. Um, by the time we'd driven back to Auckland, I'd made my mind up anyway. I'm not sure that she had, but... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I'd certainly, we sort of dismissed it initially, but by the time we'd done the six or seven hour drive back to Auckland, I was convinced. And I think one of the things that attracted me was the idea that I was, uh, was the opportunity of being a shareholder and a partner in the business. It was an opportunity either you're in or you're out, either you're an employee for the rest of your life working for someone else or you're going to join join a business and be part of it. And that's really what I wanted to do. Yeah. And be being part of something from the ground up was attractive. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, so obviously there were a couple of wineries there and you saw the potential of the of the Martinborough region because it was still you know, fairly early days, wasn't it? Yes, that's quite right. Uh, the first wines I saw from uh, from the district were Adarangi and Martinborough Vineyard Pinot Noirs. And they were nothing like anything we'd ever seen in, in Auckland. The only reds that delegates were making were reds, either hybrid reds or Cabernet out of Huapai. And those wines were totally different. And I was far more attracted to, to what I saw in barrel here at the end of 85. And I think in all fairness, those wines, they were far from perfect, but they showed the potential of ripe fruit. And that, that, equated to me along the lines of fruit from South Australia. I was familiar with South Australian winemaking, and very, it's a very dry, very hot climate compared to New Zealand. But the, And those wines were really made in uh, in the rain shadow on the uh, in South Australia on the eastern side of the hills, and that's what this, this district was compared to Auckland and, and to a lesser extent to Gisborne. We are in the rain shadow behind the mountains and we had dry summers and uh, far more reliable weather for grape growing. And that also was something that was very obvious to me. It was, was I guess, very easy decision. It was more like what I was familiar with from South Australia. Right. Yeah, okay. And you could see that that was going to make a difference in what you were going to be able to produce from that from that area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was brand new. We didn't know much about Pinot Noir. Uh, essentially, Marlborough didn't exist. It was just being planted. But uh, we had a lot of lot of uh, influence from, again, another name, Danny Schuster from Canterbury. Mm-hmm. He had established Pinot Noir with St. Helena to, to some success, and uh, Martin Vineyard was somewhat modelled on that business and Danny's input there. So uh, it, we saw this as a similar climate to Wipro and went about planting the best soil types that um, – one of the partners, Derek Milne, was a soil scientist. He identified the best soil types for what he believed grape growing required, and uh, off we went. We really planted a range of earlier ripening varieties and uh, yeah, got on with it. Yeah, yeah. And d- was it a few years then, you know, after planting for the you know vines to sort of take hold and, and get maturity that – does it take a few years before you you go? Yeah, okay. I think we're we're on a on a on a bit of a winner here. Yeah, definitely. Vine age is part of it. Um, the the wines we make from older vines are, are very different to first, second, third crop vines. I, I think, in all fairness, we always cite vine age, but I always like to add winemaker age as well. There was we were learning very very fast. It was a steep learning curve. I'd made a little bit of bulk pin and noir at delegates, but nothing of any great importance. And we were learning exactly what pin and noir required. And, and I think the turning point for me, uh, this was 1986, my first vintage. In 1990, I was fortunate enough to go to Burgundy for seven weeks. 
and worked on three different properties over that period of time, um, all very famous and and had a, a, a real enlightenment, enlightenment if, you, if you like. Uh, that was a great vintage 1990. They picked fantastic fruit and made some fantastic wine. But what I took from that ultimately was the, the whole terroir attitude, the expression of place. And um, I think the, the main part of that vintage was done at Dujark and they uh, they carefully separate out all their different uh, vineyards and ferment them separately, obviously, as everyone does. But they were very well set up with the right size tanks for each vineyard. And, and we could see major differences in vineyards that were made exactly the same way from adjoining properties. And it really brought home to me the, the whole concept of place and the expression of place. Yeah. Okay. So it's a really quite good timing for you. Yeah. Because you'd, you'd had a few years under your belt at, at Martinborough and then obviously had things that, um, you could then pick up from, from your time there in Burgundy and sort of, you know, immediately relate to it or apply it to, to what you were doing. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. We were ready for some to go the next step. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah. What was the progression uh, after that for you with, um, in Martinborough? Oh, so I guess we settled into making, uh, the styles of wine that the district was recognized for, um, exploring place, exploring vineyards, fermenting everything separately. And we started to bottle different, uh, different cubes, if you like, different lots. Uh, we had a reserve wine and that, that kept me entertained perhaps for the next 10 years until 98, 99 when I was offered the opportunity of a, joint venture partnership with an Australian family, which became a Scarpman. And that was, uh, that was something that I couldn't refuse. It was a, again, another step up. I became a 50% shareholder in a business and we, uh, we were part of the pioneering vineyards on Tamuna Road. Right. And that, and that, um, that was another step in the right direction. I think we, again, we had a lot of experience, uh, could start again with some, um, high density planting was something that we hadn't played around with at, uh, at Martin Brevignard was something that was obviously very important to, to Burgundy, to the Burgundians. They wouldn't dream of growing grapes on less than, on anything, you know, wider than one by one meter. And we want to explore that as well as a very similar soil type, but slightly cooler climate on Tamuna Road. And uh, I think all those things added up into some pretty exciting wines at the end of the day. Yes, I, I was going to ask you what what um, what you saw as the differences in in where you were originally um, growing in Martinborough and then onto Tamuna Road. So there was a, a big, you know, well, not a big difference, but you know, significant differences or, or not? Were they quite subtle? Just the sort of change in lo- in location there. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one that I think. The differences are less acute than they were. When we went out there, again, perhaps site young vines and new vineyards and no shelter trees and so on, very wide open spaces and a slightly cooler climate. But uh, yeah, same soil type, so we could perhaps uh, say that that's not having a great influence. Um, but it was certainly a little cooler, a little more exposed, a little bit more wind. And what that was giving us was slightly later picking and I would argue some better skin quality. We were getting what seemed to me, we were taking fruit from from t- town as well as off these new vineyards. 
and we could see what we thought was better skin quality, better skin thickness from Tamuna Road for whatever reason. You could cite the wind or the clone or whatever. But anyway, we were getting very good skin quality, and I, I think that was something that we were happy enough to say that was a Tamuna Road influence because we, every year we could compare it to the older, more established vineyards we were taking from town. And, you know, we started, again, continuing along the terroir attitude of separating out the, the, the very A-plus grade sites and bottling them separately, which became the, the single vineyard range for escarpment. So we had four sites that we separated into the best the best vineyards we were handling and those wines were made separately since 2006 and so we've got a very had a very good record after a number of years of of exactly what these sites could do for us and how they express themselves but these days go back to your question i think these days the differences are less are less obvious between town and tamuna tamuna doesn't seem to pick quite so late anymore for what reason i'm not sure could be climate change could just be uh, the vine age is bringing the two together, but uh, mm. yeah, we still uh, we we've got better shelter around these vineyards now, and there's a little bit more, a little less wind exposure, and and a little bit more reliability, if you like. So, mm. but I think the district would gen- tend to think that the Tamuna picks slightly later. Yeah, and and so you obviously you know had had different terroir slightly, and and different different f- fruit that you were working with and. Do you think also your winemaking style just kept evolving as, as well, what you were looking for in a wine, um, what you were confident in doing perhaps? Or Yes. I've always been a great experimenter. I love trying things out, and, and that's something that I've always said to younger winemakers, just have a go. You know, We get so worried about doing it perfectly. There's no perfect answer. Um, just if you've got a good idea you think might increase or decrease a an attribute in a wine that uh, you want to see more of this or less of that, give it a go. You know, even in, we were lucky with Escarpment and, and to a lesser extent with Martin Vineyard of having the volume and the number of sites to play around with. And, and if something didn't work, it could normally could be blended back into the main volume of wine. We had a number of labels. Uh, and so, yeah, we could, we could experiment and learn from that, which was really what happened with the single vineyards and, we were seeing wines that we thought maybe could be better with a bit of this or a bit of that, and we'd adjust the winemaking accordingly the following year if we had had the right climatic conditions. Um, the other thing that was happening then was it was all about learning the extraction of, of Pinot Noir. That's been the, the big trick. You know, we put a lot of energy into the right type of barrels and how we barrel age and the amount of new oak, and obviously the vineyards have a huge input um, the fermentation, very, very important. We pioneered for ourselves the all-natural ferments from about um, 1990 onwards. That worked very successfully, and we started to look at the way we were extracting colours, flavours, structure, tannins, and those wines perhaps in the beginning were over-extracted by today's standards. Now we're getting a little more clever about the way we do the the fermentation and the time on skins, and very importantly, the amount of whole bunch. That was the other thing that I took from Burgundy. Uh, we'd played around with it in a very, very minor way prior to going to Burgundy, but seeing Dujac, 100% whole bunch, everything, and those wines were very savoury, very perfumed, 
very, very interesting to me and, and what Burgundy's all about compared to the new world. Right, right, yeah, okay. And and so you were obviously learning as as you were going and trying, as you say, you were you know happy to or well confident to experiment. And where did you feel like you started looking for different things in your wines as well as you went on? Yeah, yes. I think as I said, I think we started to extract more cleverly, mm-hmm. more intelligently. We didn't just uh, go for the most colour and the most tannin and the most flavour we could find. Pinot Noir is about finesse and elegance, and it took me quite a long time to learn that. I think well, I always knew that that's what Pinot Noir was about, but how to go about getting that into the wines. And we were coming off the back of an understanding in the marketplace that wine wasn't any good unless it was Cabernet or Shiraz, and particularly in Australia, Pinot Noir had to match up to Shiraz, Cabernet Shiraz blends, and if it was lighter, fruitier, more elegant, People didn't want to know, and we we coming off the back of that. It took a little while to convince the market that Pinot Noir is a is a, it's got a certain expression that people had to learn what it was all about. And mm. I think once they did that, they adopted it very quickly and very happily. And I always cite mainly because Pinot Noir suits today's cuisine and lifestyle. I think far better than the the bigger. Rhone Bordeaux varieties, as much as they're fantastic wines, they take forever to become drinkable if you believe their propaganda. They are, they're very, very powerful. Um, they match great winter, winter climate, uh, rich meat dishes, but they're not particularly elegant and they don't really match the sort of food and entertaining and the lifestyle we lead these days. So. That's where Pinot Noir fits in so well, and you can probably put Sauvignon Blanc along that in that category as well. Yeah. They're immediate wines for people who want immediacy. People don't have cellars. They don't want to wait 10 years for something to be drinkable. Right, yeah, okay. And and so you obviously, you know, had a big part to play in, in bringing New Zealand Pinot Noir to the market, both locally and, and internationally. It, any yeah. any highlights for you that you, you think back and remember on? Maybe maybe that you think back as milestones, or even just highlights, things that really stand out. That you, you know, moments you really enjoyed, or yes, definitely. Um, well, the highlights perhaps a little bit commercial, but a number th- with the 2013 Coupere Escarpment Coupere Pinot Noir was number seven in Wine Spectator's top 100. And that was the first red wine from New Zealand to get into the top 10. And it was something that I didn't give it credit for until I actually was standing in New York enjoying the moment and presenting my wine to that weekend of wine aficionados in New York. It's just the gravity of it all. We, and I always sort of thought to myself, we always like to scoff at wine spectator a little bit, but I can assure you when you're on the receiving end in the top 10 or even in the top 100, it's yeah. fantastic. You know, they, they do it so well. That was certainly a highlight for me and it was a highlight for the brand as well. That was something that, uh, I, well, I, I'll never repeat it. Um, I uh, certainly, I think I would hope New Zealand Pinot Noir can repeat it. They, it's very interesting the way they select these wines. It's not just about pure quality. It's about influence and, and, and progression. And so, yeah, definite highlight. Mm-hmm. I think the other one, the same, the same uh, vineyard, Coupere, was featured on the front page of Decanter. So to have the bottle shot 
of uh, the label on the front page of Decanter was something that we didn't perhaps ever uh, capitalise on as much as we should have. But that was again yeah, very very important from an international perspective. Mm. Yeah, nice, nice. And and anything sort of personally for you that that you remember as well about, um, or is there anything that you perhaps even more recently you've um, you've discovered or come across that's really sort of piqued your interest, either something someone's trying locally here, or you, you've had something that maybe you hadn't come across before that interested you or sort of you found exciting? Yes, if if I can go back and cite Chardonnay. Um I think what New Zealand's doing with Chardonnay is absolutely world class, incredible, and it's not just one one or two producers. Every district has two or three, five wines that are world world class and are selling for way under what they're worth in the international market. And I think the advancement and the understanding in the way Chardonnay is made and presented has been incredible. And um, I'm really getting a lot of enjoyment out of. New Zealand Chardonnay now, uh, admittedly the higher end wines, but that's been something that's it's always to me it's the the brother sister act, if you can put it that way, of Burgundy, the the yin and the yang, the two varieties that interest me the most. Um, and yeah, that's where I think the real advancements have, have come from. New Zealand Pinot Noir hasn't quite got to that point, though. In all fairness, well, I think we're doing a fantastic job. And again, over a, a number of districts, there's fantastic wines coming from a lot of different people. Arguably, are they at the international quality level of Chardonnay? That's a debatable point, but that's something for people to think about. Uh, I think if we're not there, we're certainly going to get there. Pinot Noir involves a little more slowly. Uh, the understanding in the vineyards is uh, slower, perhaps. Um, we've got a longer experience with Chardonnay. And we, uh, interestingly enough, we produce about the same volume of Chardonnay and Pinot. So, you know, we can't really say that there's a great deal more Chardonnay that people are understanding, playing with to get better understanding. There's very similar volumes of the two. So maybe just a little bit more time, vine age, winemaker age, and a little bit more experimentation will certainly get there. But there's certainly wines that are international standard and people love them. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Okay, and um, what's uh, what, what's sort of ne- next for you? You've uh... <laughs> <laughs> good question. Just relaxing now? Um, not quite. Not no. quite. Um, no, I'm not very good at that. I uh, I've taken on a small vineyard just to the south of Martinborough, yeah. and this is something that's uh, is a little interesting opportunity here. Maybe you could have helped answer one of your previous questions that. Marmbra's hung its hat on these alluvial gravel soils that have been formed by the Hungarua River, and that's been the, what the district was established on, and it's all, those soil types have brought the highest prices, highest prices in land sales. Uh, as the best of those soils were exploited, people started to look for alternatives, and uh, the south of town is, is heavier clay soil. And we always were concerned about the free draining ability of that soil for grape growing and never really sort of considered it until people were perhaps forced into moving south, slightly cheaper land and availability. And so there's uh, three or four vineyards along the Lake Ferry Road that have been planted on the heavier clay soils. And I've taken on a small one of those that's about 20 years old now. It's high-density planting, so those two things tick the box for me. 
Um, I, I don't own it. I'm just looking after it. But uh, I guess um, I'm not committing to a new brand. I, I think I've done the brand thing, but never say never. I'm getting excited about what's the vineyard's looking like at the moment in a pretty wet season, pretty heavy soils. This site is uh, it's got some good-looking bunches about to flower, or half just flowering now. So if we right. can uh, hold that together, I think that could be interesting, and it's a perhaps could be an interesting development for Martinborough. Helen Masters is right next door with her Masters Adirangi brand, making a little bit of Pinot and Chardonnay from from the block next door. So she she's got a belief in these heavier soils of giving better structure and better expression. We'll see about that, but I think at least I can say that I've got the got the experience from the stonier alluvial gravel soils to be able to understand and compare the the differences that are going to come from this um, this site, and it's got similar clones, similar vine age, and this high density as well. So it could be exciting, and if the if there's fruit and and the wines turn out as uh, as good as I'd like to think, who knows what we can do? We'll just have to wait and see. But I certainly not committing to anything at the moment, but it's keeping me interested and busy. So yeah, yeah, that 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 uh, that is exciting. I think for the for the rest of us. Um, so no no name or label as yet that <laughs> we we should be looking out for. No 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 none of that. Um, no. I I don't want to get in front of myself. I uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> brand, brand, brands take a very long time to build up, and I yeah. I haven't got that much time anymore. <laughs> and perhaps I can talk my son Ryan into uh, getting excited about it. But uh, uh, yeah, very cool. very cool. All right, and we finish on the question: If you could have uh, a glass of wine with anyone living uh, or not yet existing, who and what and when and where would you would you like to share that wine? Yeah, those questions. Um, I've thought about that, and I. There's a lot of answers, isn't there? There's a lot of clever answers. There's a lot of answers that um, are very personal, perhaps don't mean much to other people, and there's sort of uh, cliche kind of answers. But I, <laughs> it made me think, I think one of the most entertaining lunches you could have would be to have a Barack Obama and Donald Trump at lunch together on at the same table. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to be at that table. Um, but I... Not really particularly uh, interested in politics to that level, but as much as that would be entertaining. But to answer your question, I think I've already had that that one of those moments, and it was um, after the presentation of the the prepare in at the Wine Spectator event in New York. Um, six of us went to the the modern at the art the the, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yep. And had lunch there, and that was extremely memorable. And partly because uh, daughter Nina was with me, Kevin and Kimberly Judd were part of that event, and they came along for lunch. And Sam Neal and his his uh, business manager Jackie Murphy. So the six of us six of us had lunch at the at the modern. Fantastic food, fantastic event, and the whole thing. New York. I mean, it's just uh, such an exciting city. Yes. And that, that's very, very memorable. So I like to think that I perhaps had one of those moments. I have to say that the wines weren't particularly memorable. We were trying to buy esoteric things that were recommended by the sommelier. They they didn't work for me, but, um, you know, it was an experience. I guess the only way that could have been perhaps improved would have been 
thinking about the the wine to have would have been anybody's Le Montrachet, I think, is the the one thing that um, eludes me invariably. I've had a few glasses of Le Montrachet and yeah, been blown out of the water every time as much as we could talk about Latash and Richborg and Romani Conti, all the rest of it. You know, I think that, that event, if we could have had a, a Latash or a, a Le Montrachet, that would have been, uh, would have been nothing better. So yeah. nice. Hmm. Fantastic. Uh, that's, that's very cool. That's very cool. Hey, um, thank you very much, Larry. I really appreciate you, you taking the time and, um, yeah, it's, uh, obviously all you've done for, for New Zealand wine and yeah, all the very best with, with what you're doing. Not sitting. Thanks, still. Boris. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah, thank you for including me in your podcast. I'll look forward to hearing it. So yeah, it's yeah. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Good on you. Good on you. Thanks, Larry. Right. Goodbye. We've been speaking with Larry McKenna, who has recently retired after 40 years. If you'd like to find out more about Escarpment Winery, you can go to escarpment.co.nz. Uh, The link is in the description below for this podcast. And be sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine industry people uh, in the other podcasts that we have here in NZ Wine Podcast Catalogue. And also if you go to podcast.nz, you can find other podcasts on topics here in New Zealand. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, NZ Wine Podcast. And this episode was brought to you by bazibu.com. Let's get your business started. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to your company again very shortly. Mate, wa. Bye for now.